Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 65, US Election 1992, The Movie. Listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Like stories when we like stories. Break someone's teeth when we break someone's teeth. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 6, Itchy and Scratchy, The Movie which first aired on November 3rd, 1992. And I'm going to be talking about the US presidential election of 1992. Itchy and Scratchy, the movie, first aired on November 3rd, on the evening of the election that saw Bill Clinton elected president and George H.W. Bush kicked out of the White House after just one term in office. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. November the 3rd, 1992. An unusual date for The Simpsons to air. The next episode was a mere two days later. The motivation here was to air an episode during the result of the 1992 US presidential election in a bid to win new viewers. It didn't work. (laughs) Because everyone was watching the election coverage. Funnily enough. (laughs) But Gareth, I hear you cry, what was the UK number one that week? Well, it's still boys to men. And I have to do two from this same week, which is going to be a bit of a challenge in terms of historical relevance. For instance, at number three, we have something utterly forgettable in a cover of Brian Adams's Run to You by an EDM group called Range. So I'll have to have a real think about the next episode. But luckily for me, there's something very early 90s at number two. It's arrested development with people every day. Formed in 1988 by Todd Speech Thomas and Timothy DJ Headliner Barnwell, in 1993 they would become the first hip-hop act to win the Grammy for Best New Artist, one of two they would win that year. And they sold millions of copies of their debut album, Three Years, Five Months and Two Days in the Life of... But were effectively done by 1996 after poor sales of their second album, which is an almost unthinkable career arc but was possibly due to their more positive take on the genre at a time when gangster rap, with an A, was on the up. This song is... A song called Everyday People, released by Sly and the Family Stone in 1968, with new verses, and a clever new title so that you wouldn't know. This is the song's peak in the UK chart, and it got to number 8 in the Billboard Top 100 but it was number one in the Canadian Dance Stroke Urban Charts. And really, isn't that what we're all aiming for? The answer is no. (laughs) The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 12.5, equivalent to 11.6 million viewing households, 25th for the week, and beaten on Fox by both Beverly Hills 90210 and The Simpsons. (laughs) Yes, this was the lower rated of the two episodes aired that week, once again, to no one's surprise, given the historical context. The production number was 9F03, and the credited writer is John Schwarzwelder, as we discussed in episode 5, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. 
The chalkboard gag is I will not bury the new kid. And the couch gag is the couch deflates. But what happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to watch Star Trek Twelve. so very tired. <laughs> or at least the kids and grandpa are. Marge and Homer are off to a parent-teacher evening. Homer promises to bring back pizza if they've both been good, poisoned if they've both been bad, but draws the line at poisoned pizza, or any other combination thereof, due to not wanting to make two stops. In the car, Homer insists that this year he gets Lisa's teacher and Marge gets Bart's, though apparently he pulls that trick every year, including thinking of the number 37 as a tiebreaker. At the parent-teacher night, let's share the blame, Homer plays up and takes the kudos for reading TV Guide to Lisa at an early age. Whilst Marge is introduced to Bart's cachet of weapons and rap sheet, and even a reluctant victim of what we can only assume was a bum full of dynamite. Okay. This winds up with Marge doing lines and Homer getting a replacement for his Where's the Beef bumper sticker. Edna opines that even the most wayward of sheep, with consistent discipline, could become, oh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now that's aiming high. And Homer loves this idea. It's a small, occasionally recurring detail that Homer knows a surprising amount about Chief Justices. But Tom, can you remember which Chief Justices Homer names in this scene? Well, he definitely names Warren Berger because he goes, mmm, Berger. Is Howard Marshall or something? Partial credit? Yeah. We, we, we did an episode on the Supreme Court on, on where we talked about Clarence Thomas, so I should know these things, but I don't. Go on. Uh, it's uh, John Marshall, Charles Evans Hughes, and Warren Berger. Mm-hmm. Mm, Berger. Of course, without discipline, there's no telling how far he could sink, as Bart pictures an out-of-shape Bart in the stripper persona of Bang Bang Bart. Meanwhile, Bart who Marge has quoted as not meaning to be bad, literally snatches a chance to be bad by stealing Grandpa's dentures, clamping onto the ceiling fan and having a good old spin before taking massive bites out of his parents' records. When he hears their car pull in, he spits out the dentures and they smash on the fireplace, so he shoddily sellotapes them back together and slams them into Grandpa's mouth just in time. Grandpa is threatened with being put in the home, or at least moved to the crooked one they saw on 60 Minutes, but still complains that Bart smashed his teeth. Recognising the opportunity to begin that discipline that they decided on earlier, Homer allows Grandpa to smash Bart's teeth in revenge. But Bart comes in with the more realistic punishment of no dinner. Homer keeps threatening to snap, but it looks like Bart will go without, and therefore straighten up and fly right. But Homer does eventually bring him some pizza, and the spell is undone before Grandpa is held at gunpoint, attempting to steal Jasper's false teeth. <laughs> we go into Act 2, and I suddenly realise it's the first time that we, and the characters in the show, have heard about the Itchy and Scratchy movie. Bart is playing Bond villain with a microwave when he rushes to the living room to see a trailer full of suspense, romance, and a film that promises 53% new footage. Homer has asked Bart to take the trash out, and that hasn't happened attracting the attention of some wandering goats. And he again attempts a punishment, but once again fails, and spends the afternoon watching unpredictable Mexican sitcoms instead. Bart's next bout of bad behaviour is as memorable as it is bizarre. He has found bursting packets of mustard with a hammer whilst singing Jingle Bells. Still a punishment is not forthcoming due to distraction by an ice cream truck. 
Native American ice cream, formerly Big Chief Crazy Cone. Marge then comes home, and she's got beets. But she also finds Bart tearing up the carpet while Homer does absolutely nothing. And Homer gets a talking to, after which he swears to punish him next time round. Now we go to Ion Springfield, for a man who hasn't stopped hiccuping for 45 years. <laughs> but first, a feature on the itchy and scratchy movie. We take a look back to 1928, when you might have seen Al Capone dancing the Charleston on top of a flagpole. Or the first ever Scratchy cartoon, That Happy Cat, in which Scratchy walks along for a bit, and then whistles. Don't forget he doffs his hat as well, it's got an important detail. You're quite right, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out that important action scene to support <laughs> my own case. That's, um, that's very bad of me. The next year, however, he had a similar part in Steamboat Itchy. Alongside Itchy, who we will later find out is a Chester J. Lampwick creation, who machine guns Scratchy's knees off and throws him headfirst into the steamboat's furnace. We also find out that during the war they teamed up and battled Hitler. Bart is so enraptured by this that he misses Maggie stealing Homer's car and crashing it into a prison, freeing the inmates. Homer has to keep his word to Marge, and he chooses the worst punishment imaginable. He forbids Bart from ever seeing the Itchy and Scratchy movie. Da, da, da. And now we're into Act 3, which is weird, as I was sure we spent most of the episode with Bart in his ticket-free state, but no, surprisingly little of it, in fact. Bart begs Homer to change his punishment, and even Lisa goes to bat for him. It's the pop culture event of a generation, with cues all the way to right outside their house. But Homer stands firm. It's like that time that Homer really wanted the catcher's bit, but his dad wouldn't get it for him. So he held his breath until he passed out and banged his head on the coffee table. The doctors thought he might have brain damage. <laughs> and what's the point of that story? I like stories. TV just isn't hitting the spot, and Bart finds his imagination is essentially broken. When Lisa returns from the movie, laden with merchandise and stories of pseudonymous cameos, not even the novelisation of the movie is helping. And worse, he's actually reached a point where he's being bullied for having not seen the film. Truly, he has the demented melancholy of a Tennessee Williams heroine. <laughs> Marge and Lisa try to convince Homer one more time, but he's standing firm. And as summer turns to fall, the movie shows for the final time after eight months of nine Academy Awards, replaced by a movie starring Liza Minnelli and Mickey Rock. No, me either. <laughs> Bart declares that Homer won, but Homer opines that they both won. And we cut to... The World of Tomorrow! Forty years later, Bart is Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he and an elderly Homer are walking past Moe's Tavern, where you can tell us the future by the 80s computer font on the sign. <laughs> the Aztec Theatre is showing a classic of animation double feature of the itchy and scratchy movie and Beauty and the Beast. Homer agrees that Bart has learned his lesson, and the two settle in to finally enjoy the action. A good episode, oddly paced in retrospect, or maybe just paced differently to how I remember. A lot of the jokes defy description in my usual manner, so I'm slightly worried I made this sound less funny than it actually is, or that I'm less enthusiastic about it than I actually am. I think that's a good episode. What did you reckon? Yeah, I think it's a really good episode, but as you say, The Simpsons, the usual structure of it is that there's an A plot, there's a, there's a B plot, and it's near the end, they converge, and there's some sort of resolution. But here, it's like there's three different sections. There's the introduction, where 
it's decided that Bart should be punished. Then you have the second bit, which introduces the Itchy and Scratchy movie. Then you have the third bit, which is about Bart not being able to see it. So yeah, that's quite different from what they usually go for. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's almost like an evolutionary dead end. <laughs> there's, there's not... I don't know if I go as far as to say that there aren't any other episodes like this, because to be honest, it's quite difficult to keep track of 700 episodes and their exact structure. But this does seem to stick out a bit for me in, in terms of that. It's interesting to see the, the path less travelled, I suppose. <laughs> we do have a character debut here. Bumblebee, then. Yes, now, that surprised me, because I was sure we'd seen him before, but apparently not. Um, voiced here by Dan Castellaneta, for most of the rest of the time by Hank Azaria, and since 2020 by Eric Lopez. He is an assumedly Mexican slapstick comedian who speaks almost exclusively in broken, slightly incorrect Spanish, and is basically only ever seen in a Bumblebee costume. He kind of has a name. Pedro Chespirito. The first name is apparently taken from Season 7, Episode 12, Team Homer, and is meant to be visible as written on his bowling shirt, although I wasn't able to confirm that by eye, as it were. Largely due to laziness, to be honest, I could have just stuck the episode on. Meanwhile, Chesperito is taken from Bumblebee Man's original inspiration, a character called El Chapulin Colorado, or the Red Grasshopper, in a show of the same name. El Chapulin Colorado is portrayed by Mexican comedian Roberto Gomez Bolanos, who often went by his nickname of Chesperito. The show is a superhero parody with a bumbling, clumsy main character, and apparently it was on the Telemundo channel a number of times when the writers were watching, so they decided to just put a similar character into The Simpsons. Some notable Bumblebee Man appearances include Season 7, Episode 21, 22 short films about Springfield, where we get to see his home life and find that he is as clumsy as the character he portrays. In Season 5, Episode 12, Bart Gets Famous, he replaces Kent Brockman as news anchor, speaking mostly in perfect English. And most recently, in fact, on the most recent episode to be aired, Season 32, Episode 22, The Last Barfighter, he hosted a Spanish-language game show in which Bart won an apparently cursed bottle of tequila because that's where we are with The Simpsons at the minute. Right. Okay. Did you know Star Trek Twelve <laughs> is an obvious reference to the then-ongoing film series starring the cast of Star Trek The Original Series, who were knocking on a fair bit at that stage, and Shatner's still going now, at the time of recording. When this episode was made, it was likely that there was a lot of hype for the upcoming release of Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, starring all of the usuals plus Christopher Plummer as token Klingon, Mossley Hill's own Kim Cattrall as it's Savic sort of, but it isn't really, and even Iman, who was then not quite married to David Bowie. Okay. So that film came out on December the 6th, 1991, which was 11 months before this episode made it to television but only five months after it was first in video shops. Okay. So this probably still just about hit. I think it could have been a lot worse in terms of cultural proximity, but certainly more, more relevant when it was being made than when it was shown. Mm. I just think it's bizarre that they were making jokes about how old the Star Trek cast were in the early 90s, and we're now in the early 2020s, and Shatner's still alive. Nimoy died a few years ago, but he was in a... 
I'm not a massive Star Trek fan, but he was definitely in the Star Trek film just before he died, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he was in the, the reboot of Star Trek, um, as that set in an alternate timeline. So the original Spock had somehow come into the alternate timeline. Oh, okay. That it's sense. not a very good film, in my opinion. As a, as a pro- probably a bit more of a Trekkie than you are, I would say, um, yeah, didn't like it. Didn't yeah. like it. Okay, fair enough. But it, it was good he carried on working right up until uh, up until the end, as it were. Yep. Before this turns into the Nimoy cast, let's, uh, <laughs> let's carry on. So the music that Lisa plays whilst Bart is biting the ceiling fan is a song called Sabre Dance, written by, and I will mangle this pronunciation, apologies, Aram Kachaturian. Yeah, I'm not going to do any better than that. Aram Kachaturian. That's the one, yes. Okay. See, I, I haven't practised reading that, which I possibly should have done. Um, it is taken from the final act of his ballet, Guyane, from 1942. It was also apparently covered by UK subs in 1988, which I probably don't want to hear. And from the sublime to the ridiculous musically, as we also hear Homer singing Yummy, 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 <laughs> first recorded by Ohio Express in 1968. Now, that's apparently been covered by both The Residents and L7, both of which I very, very much do want to hear. (laughs) What? L7 did a cover of Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy? It appears so, yes. Okay, that's that's some pop culture knowledge that I just didn't have. (laughs) Didn't have, didn't need, now have. It's fantastic. Yeah. Retrospecticus, ladies and gentlemen. Soylent Green. We all know what that is, right? Oh, yes. Anyway, it's a cinema snack in Springfield 40 years from when this episode came out, which worryingly is only in 11 years' time now. And it came to prominence in the Charlton Heston film of the same name, released in 1973, loosely based on the 1966 novel Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison. A certain Turbo Nonce, <laughs> and also Dustin Hoffman, are said to have appeared in the Itchy and Scratchy movie under pseudonyms, which is a reference to their appearances in The Simpsons in season three episode. Well, it is one, but it's effectively zero, as it now basically doesn't exist anymore. Stark raving dad, and season two episode nineteen, Lisa substitute under the pseudonyms of John J. Smith and Sam Etic, respectively. It's a shame internet access wasn't as common back then, or Lisa could have typed "need no guest stars is pick" into AOL, and Prince could have confirmed her suspicions. <laughs> And finally, lamentably, I can find no record of Al Capone ever dancing the Charleston on top of a flagpole in 1928, or for that matter, any other year. I do apologise. I think they were just trying to be as 1920s as possible with with that particular scene. I know very little about the 1920s, but Al Capone dancing the Charleston on top of a flagpole, why not? Tom, lift our spirits with some memeable moments. Okay, now I've gone for 12. And again, you can easily argue that there's more than this. But it starts off with that Star Trek 12, so very tired thing. And I don't think they get away with it these days because it's a bit fat phobic with the Scotty. Scotty, is he called Scotty? Yes. Yeah. It's James Doohan. Yeah, where, where, he can't, where he can't reach the controls because he's too fat. But uh, the rest of it is fine. Again with the Klingons. And I complain, but nobody listens. Number two. What if one of us has been good and one of us has been bad? Poison pizza. Oh, no, I'm not making two stops. 
Number three, Bart is guilty of the following atrocities. She's very good use of, of the word atrocities. Number four is Bart, when he's imagined to be a stripper in his later life, when he's known as Bang Bang Bart. Number five, you have... The, it's brilliantly shot and animated how you have the false teeth that end up in the background and a gun that ends up in the foreground with the sort of click of the that gun noise with Jasper going, well, well, if it isn't the tooth fairy. Then you've got a very interesting one, which is number six, which is Bart hitting packets of mustard with a hammer while singing jingle bells. <laughs> and this is this was used to illustrate the labour infighting that occurred when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge and that's continued when Keir Starmer's in charge, essentially, with both... Well, not both, with the packets of mustard, Bart's hitting them with a hammer, and Homer looking on in disgust, all three of them being labelled the Labour Party. Then you've got number seven, which is a bit of a surreal one, which is Lisa coming through the door saying, We got beats. Now, I've never understood this. Why is Lisa so excited about getting beets? I mean, by beets, I assume she means beetroot. Well, you know, the root vegetable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would be the American uh, uh, yeah. way of announcing that. Uh, whereas for, for us, of course, it would be, uh, hey-ho, I have beetroot. Yes. Hey-ho, butcher, flagabogalugalugal. We've got beetroot for our tea. Um, then we've got something that we haven't talked about yet for number eight, which is the Korean Animation Factory. Now, from what I understand, this scene almost didn't make it in because the Koreans themselves were unhappy with being portrayed as being overworked and threatened at gunpoint with drawing pictures, essentially. Um, then you've got the bit where Snake steals the video player from the house and he goes, Oh no, beta! Because that was back when there was a format war going on between VHS and, and, and well, again, what we'd call beta, what Americans would call beta, because they'd added H in there for some reason. See, I remember that as being dull and dusted in the sort of early to mid-80s, but maybe that was just in Britain. Maybe, maybe. Or it could have just been really old. Yeah, and we are two massive nerds. We will happily spend hours talking about... <laughs> the things like format wars of the early 80s to late 90s. Um, but <laughs> I'm aware of time, so we'd better carry on. Although, do get in touch with us at underscore retrospect because if you want a format war special, there, I said it. Oh, okay. Good luck with that. Um, number 10 is when Homer says that he wanted a football game more than anything else and he held his breath and he fell over and banged his head on the coffee table and the doctor said he might have brain damage. Dad, what's the point of the story? I like stories. And I've, I, I've, I've had that aimed at myself because I'm, I'm very, I was very critical of Jeremy Corbyn when he was Labour leader because he was just utterly useless, almost as useful as Keir Starmer's turned out to be. And people thought, but because I was critical of Jeremy Corbyn, I, lo- my, I must have loved the Tories. Therefore... I like Tories, was aimed at me, which was nice. Uh, then at number 11, you've got uh, the bit where 
Milhouse and Nelson are arguing about how many times they've seen the Itchy and Scratchy movie. Milhouse says, I must have seen it 13 times. Nelson says, I must have seen it 17 times. And Bart looks up at them and goes, you guys must be getting pretty tired of that movie by now. No one who's seen the movie would have said that. Let's get him. That's used for all sorts of stuff. Um, notably Formula One. Yes, yes. Um, I'm in a, a great meme group called uh, Put It In MGUH, um, which is a motorsports, mainly F1, uh, Simpsons uh, posting group. And yeah, we, we often get that one, usually with the Lewis Hamilton and uh, Michael Schumacher's faces on uh, Nelson and Milhouse going on about their seven world championships and, and some un- poor unfortunate who hasn't won one uh, in the role of Bart. Mm. Um, and it makes me laugh every time <laughs> because I'm me and I'm very special that way. Oh, and finally, number 12. The picture of Bart up in the booth of the cinema that says, do not sell to this boy. That's used for all kinds of stuff. And yes, there we are. Yes. Fantastic stuff. So less memes than a couple of the recent episodes, but I would say on quality alone, this is this is a very memeable episode. You've got some Premier League ones in there. You've got um, I Like Stories. You've got some weird ones with We Got Beats and Bart hitting packets of mustard with a hammer. And of course, you guys must be getting pretty tired of that movie by now, which is, which is, which is, which is Champions League, I think. Yes. To continue the football analogies. Fantastic. Um, it hasn't come home yet, I note, by the way. No, not yet. Such a shame. Such a shame. But somebody who did come home, tenuous link, to the White House, was Slick Willie. Mmm. Right, okay, the US presidential election of 1992, it was a pretty big one. The 80s had ended, the Berlin Wall had come down, and the Soviet Union was no more. So, I'll take a look at the candidates, the issues of the day, and the results. So, who was the election between? Well, the incumbent was the Republican George Herbert Walker Bush, otherwise known as George Bush back then, but George H.W. Bush now, to differentiate from his son, who back then was known as George Bush Jr., but is now known as George W. Bush. Confused? You should be. For a modern history podcast, we haven't talked that much about George Bush, so let's do that now. George Herbert Walker Bush was born on June the 12th, 1924, in Milton, Massachusetts. Now, that's a long way from Texas, but we'll get to that in a minute. His family were exceedingly wealthy. His father, Prescott Bush, was an investment banker, and his grandfather on his father's side was Samuel P. Bush, who was an executive at a railway parts manufacturer. After World War I, Samuel P. Bush was chief of the Ordnance Small Arms and Ammunition Section of the US government, and later was on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. After the Great Depression, he was appointed to Hoover's Presidential Committee for Unemployment Relief. His maternal grandfather was George Herbert Walker, which is where the George Herbert Walker thing comes from, and he was another prominent businessman. He founded his own investment firm in 1900 before being appointed president of the Wall Street investment firm W.A. Harriman & Co. in 1920. They owned the Hamburg America line, so Walker was essentially a shipping magnate. He was also into golf, being the president of the U.S. Golf Association. The Walker Cup, 
the biennial tournament for male amateurs is named after him. I mean, I've no interest in golf whatsoever, but uh, even I've heard of the Walker Cup, so the Walker Cup is named after George Bush's grandfather on his mother's side. So, George Herbert Walker Bush was named after his maternal grandfather while taking the family name from his father's side of the family. He grew up in luxury, spending a lot of time at the family's beach house at Kennebunk Port in Maine. Now, the more eagle-eared listeners will notice that that name is very similar to Little Porgmatter Squamset Port, <laughs> the seaside town of the Simpsons visit in Season 7, Episode 25, The Summer of Four Foot Two, which is one of my absolute favourites. I don't think it's a direct reference to the Bush's summer family home, more of a general reference to upper-class summer retreats, but you can certainly see what they were going for. So Bush graduated from the Elite Phillips Academy in Massachusetts in 1942 on his 18th birthday. Of course, the Second World War was in full swing, and by this time the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, bringing the US into the war. George Bush didn't shy away from hostilities and enlisted in the Navy, becoming a naval aviator. So he flew planes for the Navy, you know, worked that one out. He ended up on the USS San Jacinto, an independence-class light aircraft carrier. He flew a Grumman TBF Avenger. You know, all the World War II American hardware nerds will be going crazy for all these names. So he flew a type of torpedo bomber. So he flew missions that required him to take off and land on an aircraft carrier. No mean feat. And just like the lead singer of Skunk and Nancy, he had the nickname Skin. Because he was tall, apparently. Uh, why does being tall make you skin? I don't know. Because you have more of it? You, you, you have more of it because you're tall, but... But yeah, I, 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 I just want to see a montage of his missions set to, set to Skunk and Nancy's music. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Why don't you weep when I hurt you? <laughs> That'd be awesome. So, as you might expect, his combat role was fraught with danger. On September the 2nd, 1944, he flew a mission against the Japanese installation at Chichijima, which is a tiny Pacific island. His plane came under intense anti-aircraft fire and it was hit, causing his engine to catch fire. He still managed to drop his bombs, but after that he flew several miles out to sea before bailing. He then waited for four hours in a life raft to be rescued. He was eventually picked up by the lifeguard submarine USS Finback. He stayed on the sub for the rest of the month, helping to rescue other downed pilots. He had a very lucky escape because the rest of the Americans who were shot down on that mission were captured and executed by beheading, and it was reported that some of them were eaten. History remembers this as the Chichijima incident. In fact, the Japanese general who ordered the killings, Yoshio Tashibana, was tried and hanged for his role in the war crime. Bush was discharged from the Navy after the war ended in 1945. By the time he was discharged, he had flown 58 missions and had completed 128 carrier landings. Pretty impressive statistics. Yeah, yeah. So just before the end of the war, he married Barbara Pierce, who of course became Barbara Bush. Following his discharge from the Navy, he enrolled at Yale, who at the time were offering accelerated courses that could be completed in two and a half years instead of four. 
He majored in economics, but was also on the baseball team, as well as being a member of the secretive Skull and Bones Society. After graduating in 1948, Bush moved his young family, George W. was two at the time, to West Texas, a world away from the Northeast. He moved there for two reasons, to work in the oil industry and to escape the shadow of his family. I mean, his father became a senator in 1952, he had a lot to live up to. He co-founded the Zapata Petroleum Corporation in 1953 and eventually sold his stock in it in the mid-60s for a million dollars. In 1964, Bush won the Republican primary in a Senate election on the back of being critical of the incumbent Democrat Ralph W. Yarborough's support of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This was nothing to do with being racist, of course. It was because the act expanded the powers of the federal government. I mean... Obviously, that's a perfectly good reason to be against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Come on. Absolutely, yeah. As long as it's not about the racism, it's Mm. absolutely fine to be against that act. Yes. So, Bush first got elected in 1966 when he was elected to Congress. He served for four years, voting for the Civil Rights Act of 1968. He once again ran for the Senate in 1970, but was defeated by Democrat Lloyd Benson. Following his defeat in the Senate election... Richard Nixon made George Bush the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., giving him his first direct role in U.S. foreign policy. The major event of his time at the U.N. was the eventual answer to the China question. As I talked about in episode 32, Lisa's temporary provisions against the Communist Rebellion, the Chinese Civil War ended in 1949 with victory for Mao Zedong's communists. This result caused controversy in the U.N. as it raised the question, who should have China's seat? That question was finally answered in 1971, where members voted to expel the Republic of China and give their seat to the People's Republic of China, something that Bush voted against. In 1973, Bush was removed from his role at the UN by President Nixon and instead became the chairman of the Republican National Committee. Then, of course, the Watergate scandal raised its head. Bush supported Nixon up until the release of the White House tapes. After that, Bush told Nixon that he had lost the support of the party and that he would be impeached in Congress, then convicted by the Senate. To avoid that fate, Nixon resigned in 1974. After Nixon's resignation, Bush was appointed to be the US's envoy to the People's Republic of China. Diplomatic relations between the states and the PRC were still in their infancy, so Bush served as the chief of the US liaison's office instead of a full ambassador. Bush was in that role for a short time, when he became the director of the CIA in 1975. He was in that role for just a year when his boss, Gerald Ford, was beaten by Jimmy Carter, history's greatest monster. With Republicans out of power, Bush returned to his businesses in Texas. However, it wasn't long before he would be back involved in politics again. On May 1st, 1979, he announced that he would run for the Republican nomination for president. He was up against Ronald Reagan, whose monetary policies he famously called voodoo economics. Ultimately, Reagan stormed ahead and became the Republican nominee. However, Bush was seen as a more moderate candidate when compared to the conservative Reagan, and Reagan chose him as his running mate. Carter served just one term as president when he was soundly defeated in 1980 by Ronald Reagan. Reagan comfortably won the 1984 election, meaning that George Bush would be vice president for the full eight-year term. 
As he was vice president for most of the 80s, George Bush oversaw a lot of the things that happened during that momentous decade, including improved relations with the Soviet Union after Mikhail Gorbachev became leader. Reagan was ineligible to run in 1988, having served two terms as president. In the primaries, Bush did well, securing the nomination after winning 16 of the 17 states that held their primaries on Super Tuesday that year. He selected the Indiana Senator Dan Quayle as his running mate. At the Republican convention, he made his famous Read My Lips, No New Taxes speech. Bush easily won the 1988 election, defeating the ineffective Democratic candidate Michael Dukakis with 53.4% of the popular vote. As president, George Bush's term was mixed. In order to balance the books and address the federal deficit, Bush agreed with Democrats in Congress that tax rises were necessary. This made him unpopular with conservatives, who unsurprisingly felt betrayed. You know, he said, read my lips, no new taxes, less than a year before raising taxes. Ah, but did he raise existing taxes? Because uh-huh. if so, he was adhering to the letter of his address, if not the spirit. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't know if he tried to weasel his way out of it, but as we all know, that weaseling out of things is a skill that elevates us above all other animals, apart from the weasel. Well, if I was going to weasel out of it, that's exactly how I'd do it. Okay. On the foreign policy side... Bush's tenure, of course, saw the end of the Cold War, with the US emerging from it victorious after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. However, Bush saw the height of his popularity following the Gulf War, which saw a short, decisive campaign and a total victory for the US and their allies. With all that in mind, Bush's nomination from the Republican Party for the 1992 presidential election seemed a formality. However, he was challenged by the Conservative columnist Pat Buchanan, who managed to get 23% of the primary votes. So that's Bush. What about Clinton? Well, I've already talked about him in episode 38 when Bill Clinton failed, so I don't want to go over old ground, but in a nutshell, he was governor of the state of Arkansas, or Arkansas, if you want to be an idiot and call it that. He described himself as a New Democrat, and his third-way policy saw him win the Democratic Party nomination for the presidential election in 1992. That's for Republicans and Democrats, but of course there was a significant third candidate, Ross Perot. Again, I've gone over Ross Perot in detail in episode 52, Ross Perot at the bat. So once again, in a nutshell, Ross Perot was a Texas billionaire businessman who made his money in databases and telecommunications. He came into a presidential race as an outsider, dropped out of it in July only to re-enter it in October. He said because the CIA were trying to interfere with his daughter's wedding or something like that. (sighs) But one thing that Perot did was force the agenda. Before him, the Republicans and Democrats were controlling the dialogue, and suddenly people were talking about things like the budget deficit. Perot had his ideas of how to address it, and because he did, Bush and Clinton had to as well. Perot was the only one of the three candidates who was very much against the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA for short. It was being negotiated at the time, and it sought to eliminate trade tariffs. It brought the USA, Canada and Mexico into one big trading block, a little bit bit like the EU single market. Supporters saw that it would lead to increased economic prosperity, whereas critics such as Perot feared that it would lead to American jobs being moved to Mexico, where labour was much cheaper. 
He had a way with words, Rossborough. He said that if NAFTA was passed, you'd hear a great big sucking sound. Mexico going, I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Sorry, I saw a there will be blood this meme this morning. It's been in my head all day. <laughs> so, what were the issues of the day? Well, there was one subject that was on everybody's lips. The economy. Unemployment had been running at over 7% for the whole of 1992, with some declaring that the American dream was dead. You know, the American dream that you grow up, you, as Eddie Izzard says, you, you get all the money of the world and stick it in your ears and go... <laughs> anyway, Clinton's team seized on this and they came up with the simplest campaign slogan in the history of ever. It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> Well, it was part of the strategy of the Clinton campaign. The phrase itself was coined by James Carville, who posted a sign with things to focus on on Bill Clinton's door. They were change versus more of the same, the economy stupid, and don't forget healthcare. Ironically enough, the foreign policy wins that George Bush presided over didn't help him at all. Following the Gulf War, his approval ratings were over 80%. 18 months later, they dropped to around 40%. Also, the Cold War had kind of fizzled out rather than ending with some sort of overwhelming military victory, like if if the Soviet Union had been destroyed with a wave of nuclear weapons that would have been that would have stuck in people's memories, whereas it sort of one day just stopped existing, pretty much. So in many ways, Bush was seen as being part of the past, whereas Clinton was for future. It was a real generational thing as well, because George Bush was seen as old and past it. So by the time the election day rolled around, the mood in the Bush and Clinton camps couldn't have been any more different. Clinton had been battling laryngitis and lost his voice at one point, but still managed to stir up support and shake lots of hands at rallies around the country. Remember when people could shake hands, just just go to loads of strangers, shake your hands? Awful times. Disgusting. So the Republicans engaged in some negative campaigning, accusing Clinton of smoking pot when he was at college. Clinton famously responded with, I didn't enjoy it and I didn't inhale. Yeah, as if. You know. They also accused him of draft dodging, using his connections to avoid fighting in Vietnam when he was drafted in 1968. I mean, when you could compare his military record to George Bush's, there just wasn't any comparison. Obviously, that's a bit rich these days when you consider what George W. Bush and Donald Trump did to avoid service. In response, the Clinton camp came up with a great bit of whataboutery. I mean, you know, usually I hate whataboutery, but when you can use it to your own advantage, it's pretty good. So they accused George Bush of knowing more than he admitted regarding the Iran-Contra affair. In case you've forgotten about that, this was when the US government secretly supplied arms to Iran in the Iran-Iraq war and used the proceeds to fund the Contra forces in Nicaragua. It's all very shady. Suddenly the boot was on the other foot and the whole thing worked against George Bush, with him being seen as untrustworthy. And also, the election came less than a year after a banquet hosted by Kichi Miyazawa, the Prime Minister of Japan, in which George Bush threw up a Miyazawa's lap before fainting. The event only helps to cement the public image as George Bush as an old man who was past his prime. 
I don't, I don't know if you've seen footage of that. It's known as the George Bush vomiting incident. I, I wasn't aware footage existed. Yeah, yeah. He he he, he looks in serious trouble. It's it it, it it it's not like he suddenly goes, oh, don't feel very well. He 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 looks like he he's completely gone, oh. and just being sick is part of it. But you know, he's surrounded by secret service stuff, and there's one guy who. He so he sort of tries to do the nothing to see here, nothing to see here, see it. I mean, he looks round and see that George Bush is on the floor, and he leaps over the table. <laughs> nothing to see here, nothing to see. Oh my God, would you look at that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, a horrible presidential crash at a Japanese banquet. Get a load of the flaming wreckage of his political career. <laughs> Come on, crowd in, plenty of room. Mm. So, on election day, the writing was pretty much on the wall. As always, the projections came in from east to west. Just working across the time zones, basically. The majority of states in the east were called for Clinton, and NBC's electoral map lit up red. Red for Republicans and blue for Democrats only became an established thing in the year 2000, believe it or not. So if you watch old footage of US presidential elections... It'll just be whatever colour they decide to go for. And that, and that year, NBC decided to go for Clinton would be red and Bush would be blue. Clinton passed a magic number of 270 projected electoral votes as early as a quarter to ten Eastern time. I mean, imagine that these days. Because you have the whole election of 2000, which took over a month to sort out because of all the court battles over the hang chads and all that sort of stuff. And the most recent election, 2020, that went on for several days, although that was because of lots of mail-in ballots, you know, and that was during the coronavirus pandemic, so that is excusable, I suppose. In the end, Clinton got 43% of the popular vote, Bush 37.5%, and Perot 18.9%. Despite nearly one in five votes nationwide being for Ross Perot, he didn't win a single electoral college vote. There was talk about him sneaking in one vote in Maine, as Maine distributed its college votes according to its congressional districts. But he didn't. So Clinton finished up with 370 electoral college votes, way above the required 270. The only states with more than 10 electoral college votes won by Bush were Texas, Florida, Indiana, Virginia, and North Carolina. Clinton won all of the other key battleground states, including Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia. Al Gore chipped in with his home state of Tennessee, voting Democrat. Funnily enough, Clinton didn't win more than 50% of the popular vote. He only took 43% of it. But that was still 5 million more votes than Bush. If the election had been contested in such a way that the winner was required to get more than 50% of the votes nationwide, like it was in Peru, see episode 56, Fujimori Widower, they would have had to have had a runoff election between Jess Bush and Clinton. It would be very interesting to see what would have happened to the Perot vote, whether it would have gone to Clinton, whether it would have gone to Bush. Who knows? Clinton was inaugurated on January the 20th, 1993. After a shaky start to his presidency, which saw his first two nominations for Attorney General disqualified for tax reasons, the Democrats lost control of the Senate and the House of Representatives in 1994, and from then on struggled to get anything done. But he made a comeback in the 1996 election, 
comfortably beating Senator Ke Bob Dole, even bettering the 1982 result after taking Florida. As for George Bush, he pretty much retired after the election. He visited Kuwait in 1993, where the Kuwaiti authorities uncovered a plot to assassinate him with a car bomb. In retaliation, Clinton ordered a cruise missile strike on Baghdad. Remember those days? You just... Where the Americans would just casually fire some missiles at Baghdad if Saddam Hussein did anything. So, final thoughts from me. Personally, this election result felt like the proper end of the 80s. Bush was the president who oversaw the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the reunification of Germany. But his time, and his era, was up. It felt like it was time for someone new to run the show, and that person just happened to be Bill Clinton. Excellent. So um, that leaves you with the, the horrible task of trying to find Bill Clinton in the Simpsons. Oh, no, wait, there he is. <laughs> um, he was in The Simpsons a fair few times, voiced variously by uh, Dan Castellaneta, Phil Hartman, and Carl Wiedergott. Mm. He's probably best known for his appearance opposite Senator Bob Dole in Season 8, Episode 1, Treehouse of Horror 7, caught up in a nude conspiracy as Kang and Kodos invade the Earth. But a close second would be his part in Season 11, Episode 13, Saddle Saw Galactica, which is the one where jockeys are elves and there's a diving horse, often quoted as the worst episode ever. It's not... It's the ninth worst episode ever so far. <laughs> I proved it last year with science and counting. <laughs> At the end of that episode, Clinton delivers the classic line, I'm a pretty lousy president. Yes. There's also season 10, episode 13, Homer to the Max, where Clinton crosses paths with Max Power and his wife Marge and tries to woo Marge with the promise of sex in the tool shed in the grounds of the White House. Oh, and in season 6, episode 14, Bart's Comet... He is the prez that says school is for losers in a newspaper headline. <laughs> From these appearances and the tone thereof, we definitely get a picture of how the writer saw Clinton and his legacy. And it's not a pretty one. Mm. Well, before we finish up, there's just one thing I want to say. I watched some of the coverage from NBC of the election night. And it was really interesting watching the adverts about how we've... How, how far technology has come in some ways, but hasn't in others. But I was also reminded of how Americans say certain words. Like, you know how there are different sorts of sports cars, and one of them we call a coupe. Americans pronounce that word coupe. Like a chicken coop. Like a chicken coop, exactly. So, of course, that got me thinking, paint my chicken coop. <laughs> And then and someone just bringing around the latest Ford Coupe. Uh, maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe maybe us being next to France means nothing. Who knows? It's never meant less. <laughs> and on that bombshell, hopefully not falling on France, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.